0: Chapter 8 The warning which she had had with regard to her friends, and which she wrote on to them at once, received its fulfillment within a very few weeks. Mr. John, who was on the eve of departure for London again to serve his brother there, who was back again in the fleet by now, wrote that he knew very well that they were all under suspicion, that he had sent on to his son the message she had given, but that he hoped they would yet weather the storm. And as to yourself, Mistress Marjorie, he wrote, this makes it all the more necessary that Booth's edge should not be suspected, for what will our men do if Padley be closed to them? You have heard of our friend Mr. Garlick's capture? But that was no fault of yours. The man was warned. I hear that they will send him into banishment only this time. The news came to her as she sat in the garden over her needlework on a hot evening in June. There it was as cool as anywhere in the countryside. She sat at the top of the garden where her mother and she had sat with Robin so long before. The breeze that came over the moor bore with it the scent of the heather, and the bees were busy in the garden flowers about her. It was first the gallop of a horse that she heard, and even at that sound she laid down her work and stood up. But the house below her blocked most of her view, and she sat down again when she heard the dull rattle of the hoofs die away again. When she next looked up, a man was running towards her from the bottom of the garden, and Janet was peeping behind him from the gate into the court. As she again stood up, she saw that it was Dick Sampson, He was so out of breath, first with his ride and next with his run up the steep path, that for a moment or two he could not speak. He was dusty, too, from foot to knee. His cap was awry and his collar unbuttoned. "'It is Mr. Thomas, mistress,' he gasped presently. "'I was in Derby and saw him being taken to the jail. I could not get speech with him. I rode straight up to Padley and found none there but the servants and them knowing nothing of the matter, and so I rode on here, mistress.' He was plainly all aghast at the blow. Hitherto it had been enough that Sir Thomas was in ward for his religion, and to this they had become accustomed, but that the heir should be taken too, and that without a hint of what was to happen, was wholly unexpected. She made him sit down, and presently drew from him the whole tale. Mr. Anthony Babington, his master, was away to London again, leaving the house in Derby in the hands of servants. He then, Dick Sampson, was riding out early to take a horse to be shooed, and had come back through the town square when he saw the group ride up to the jail door near the friar gate. He too had ridden up to ask what was forward, and had been just in time to see Mr. Thomas taken in. He had caught his eye, but had feigned not to know him. Then the man had attempted to get at what had happened from one of the fellows at the door, but could get no more from him than that the prisoner was a known and confessed recusant, and had been laid by the heels according to orders, it was believed, sent down from the council. Then Dick had ridden slowly away till he had turned the corner, and then hot foot for Padley. And I heard the fellow say to one of his company that an informer was coming down from London on purpose to deal with Mr. Thomas. Marjorie felt a sudden pang, for she had never forgotten the one she had set eyes on in the tower. "'His name?' she said breathlessly. "'Did you hear his name?' "'It was Topcliffe, mistress,' said Dick indifferently. The other called it out. Marjorie sat silent. Not only had the blow fallen more swiftly than she would have thought possible, but it was coupled with a second of which she had never dreamed—that it was this man above all others that should have come.' this man who stood to her mind by a mere chance for all that was most dreadful in the sinister forces arrayed against her. This brought misery down on her indeed. For besides her own personal reasons for terror, there was besides the knowledge that the bringing of such a man at all from London on such business meant that the movement beginning here in her own county was not a mere caprice. She sat silent then, seeing once more before her the wide court of the tower, the great keep opposite, and in the midst that thin figure moving to his hateful business, and she knew now, in this instant as never before, that the chief reason for her terror was that she had coupled in her mind her own friend Robin with the thought of this man, as if by some inner knowledge that their lives must cross some day. A knowledge which she could neither justify nor silence. Thank God, at least, that Robin was still safe in Rheims. She sent him off after a couple of hours' rest, during which once more he had told his story to Mistress Alice, with a letter to Mr. Thomas's wife who, no doubt, would have followed her lord to Derby. She had gone apart with Alice, while Dick ate and drank, to talk the affair out, and had told her of Topcliffe's presence, at which news even the placid face of her friend looked troubled. But they had said nothing more on the point, and had decided that a letter should be written in Mistress Babington's name, offering Mrs. Fitzherbert the hospitality of Babington House and any other services she might wish. Further, they had decided that the best thing to do was to go themselves to Derby next day, in order to be at hand, since Mr. John was in London, and the sooner Mrs. Thomas had friends with her, the better. They may keep him in ward a long time, said Mistress Alice, before they bring him into open court, to try his courage. That is the way they do. The charge, no doubt, will be that he has harbored and assisted priests. It seemed to Marjorie as she lay awake that night, staring through the summer dusk at the tall press which hid so much behind her dresses that the course on which her life moved was coming near to the rapids. Ever since she had first put her hand to the work, ever since, even, she had first offered her lover to God and let him go from her, it appeared as if God had taken her at her word, and accepted in an instant that which she offered so tremblingly. Her sight of London, the great buildings, the crowds, the visible forces of the crown, the company of gallant gentlemen who were priests behind their ruffs and feathers, the tower, her glimpse of Topcliffe, these things had shown her the dreadful reality that lay behind this gentle scheming up in Derbyshire. Again there was Mr. Babington, Here, too, she had perceived a mystery which she could not understand. Something moved behind the surface, of which not even Mr. Babington's sister knew anything, except that, indeed, it was there. Again there was the death of Father Campion, the very man whom she had taken as a symbol of the faith for which she fought with her woman's wits. There was the news that came so suddenly and terribly now and again of one more priest gone to his death. It was like the slow rising of a storm. The air darkens, a stillness falls on the countryside, the chirp of the bird seems as a plaintive word of fear. Then the thunder begins, a low murmur far across the horizons, then a whisk of light seen and gone again, and another murmur after it. And so it gathers dusk on dusk, stillness on stillness, murmur on murmur, deepening and thickening, yet still no rain, but a drop or two that falls and ceases again. And from the very delay it is all the more dreadful, for the storm itself must break sometime, and the artillery war in the heavens, and the rain rush down, and flash follow flash, and peel, peel, and the climax come. So then it was with her. There was no drawing back now, even had she wished it. And she wished it, indeed, though she did not will it. She knew that she must stand in her place, now more than ever, when the blow had fallen so near. Now more than ever must she be discreet and resolute, since Padley itself was fallen, in effect if not in fact. And Booth's edge, in this valley at least, was the one hope of hunted men. She must stand, then, in her place. She must plot and conspire and scheme. She must govern her face and her manner more perfectly than ever, for the sake of that tremendous cause. As she lay there, listening to her friends breathing in the darkness, staring now at the doors of the press, now at the baggage that lay heaped ready for the early start, these and a thousand other thoughts passed before her. It was a long plot that had ended in this. It must have reached its maturity weeks ago. The decision to strike must have been reached before even Squire Audrey had given her the warning, for it was only by chance that she had met him and he had told her. And he, too, Robin's father, would be in the midst of it all. He too that was a Catholic by baptism must sit with the other magistrates and threaten and cajole as the manner was. And quiet Derby would be all astir, and the Bassetts would be there, and Mr. Fenton to see how their friend fared in the dock. And the crowds would gather to see the prisoner brought out, and the hunt would be up, and she herself, she too must be there with the tearful little wife who could do so little. Thank God Robin was safe in Rames. Derby was indeed astir as they rode in, with the servants and the baggage following behind, on the late afternoon of the next day. They had ridden by easy stages, halting at Dethick for dinner, where the Babington's house already hummed with dismay at the news that had come from Derby last night. Mr. Anthony was away, and all seemed distracted. They rode in by the north road, seeing for the last mile or two of their ride the towering spire of All Saints Church high above the smoke of the houses. They passed the old bridge half a mile from the market place, near the ancient camp, and even here overheard a sentence or two from a couple of fellows that were leaning on the parapet that told them what was the talk of the town. It was plain that others besides the Catholics understood the taking of Mr. Thomas Fitzherbert to be a very significant matter. Babington House stood on the further side of the marketplace from that on which they entered, and Alice was for going there through side streets. They will take notice if we go straight through, she said. It is Cheese Market today. They will take notice in any case, said Marjorie. It will be over the town tomorrow that Mistress Babington is here, and it is best, therefore, to come openly, as if without fear. And she turned to beckon the servants to draw up closer behind. The square was indeed crowded as they came in. For all the country round, and especially from Dovedale, the farmers came in on this day, or sent their wives, for the selling of cheeses. And the small oblong of the market, the smaller from its great conduit and cross, was full with rows of stalls and carts, with four lanes only left along the edges by which the traffic might pass. And even here the streams of passengers forced the horses to go in a single file. Groups of men, farmer-servants who had driven in the carts or walked with the pack-beasts, to whom this day was a kind of feast, stood along the edges of the booths, eyeing all who went by. The inns, too, were doing a roaring trade, and it was from one of these that the only offensive comment was made. Mistress Babington rode first, as suited her dignity, preceded by one of the dethick men whom they had taken up on their way, and who had pushed forward when they came into town to clear the road, and Mistress Manners rode after her. The men stood aside as the cavalcade began to go between the booths, and the most of them saluted Mistress Babington. But as they were almost out of the market, they came abreast one of the inns from whose wide-open doors came a roar of voices from those that were drinking within, and a group that was gathered on the steps stopped talking as the party came up. Marjorie glanced at them, and noticed there was an air about two or three of the men that was plainly town-bred. There was a certain difference in the cut of their clothes and the way they wore them. Then she saw two or three whispering together, and the next moment came a brutal shout. She could not catch the sentence, but she heard the word papist with an adjective, and caught the unmistakable bullying tone of the man. The next instant there broke out a confusion. A man dashed up the step from the crowd beneath, and she caught a glimpse of Dick Sampson's furious face. Then the group bore back, fighting, into the inn door. The deathic servant leapt off his horse, leaving it in some fellow's hands, and vanished up the step. There was a rush of the crowd after him, and then the way was clear in front, over the little bridge that spanned Bramble Brook. When she drew level with Alice, she saw her friend's face, pale and agitated. It is the first time I have ever been cried at, she said. Come, we are nearly home. There is St. Peter's Spire. Shall we not—' began Marjorie. No, no, and the pale face tightened suddenly. My fellows will give them a lesson. The crowd is on our side as yet. As they rode in under the archway that led in beside the great doors of Babington House, three or four grooms ran forward at once. It was plain that their coming was looked for with some eagerness. Alice's manner seemed curiously different from that of the quiet woman who had sat so patiently beside Marjorie in the manor among the hills. A certain air of authority and dignity sat on her now that she was back in her own place. Is Mrs. Fitzherbert here? she asked from the groom who helped her to the ground. Yes, mistress, she came from the inn this morning and... Well? She is in a great taking, mistress. She would eat nothing, they said. Alice nodded. You had best be off to the inn, she said with a jerk of her head. A London fellow insulted us just now, and Samson and Mallow... She said no more. The man who held her horse slipped the reins into the hands of the younger groom who stood by him, and was away and out of the court in an instant. Marjorie smiled a little, astonished at her own sense of exultation. The blows were not to be all one side, she perceived. Then she followed Alice into the house. As they came through into the hall by the side door that led through from the court where they had dismounted, a figure was plainly visible in the dusky light, going to and fro at the further end, with a quick, nervous movement. The figure stopped as they advanced, and then darted forward, crying out piteously, Ah, you have come, thank God, thank God, they will not let me see him. Hush, hush, said Alice as she caught her in her arms. Mr. Bassett has been here, moaned the figure, and he says it is Topcliffe himself who has come down on the matter. He says he is the greatest devil of them all, and Thomas— Then she burst out crying again. It was an hour before they could get the full tale out of her. They took her upstairs and made her sit down, for already a couple of faces peeped from the buttery, and the servants would have gathered in another five minutes. And together they forced her to eat and drink something, for she had not tasted food since her arrival at the inn yesterday, and so little by little they drew the story out. Mr. Thomas and his wife were actually on their way from Norbury when the arrest had been made. Mr. Thomas had intended to pass a couple of nights in Derby on various matters of the estates, And although, his wife said, he had been somewhat silent and quiet since the warning had come to him from Mr. Audrey, even he had thought it no danger to ride through Derby on his way to Padley. He had sent a servant ahead to order rooms at the inn for those two nights, and it was through that, it appeared, that the news of his coming had reached the ears of the authorities. However that was, and whether the stroke had been actually determined upon long before, or had been suddenly decided upon at the news of his coming, it fell out that, as the husband and wife were actually within sight of Derby, on turning a corner they had found themselves surrounded by men on horses, plainly gathered there for the purpose, with a magistrate in the midst. Their names had been demanded, and, upon Mr. Thomas's hesitation, they had been told that their names were well known, and a warrant was produced on a charge of recusancy and of aiding Her Grace's enemies drawn out against Mr. Thomas Fitzherbert, and he had been placed under arrest." Further, Mrs. Fitzherbert had been told she must not enter the town with the party, but must go either before them or after them, which she pleased. She had chosen to go first, and had been at the windows of the inn in time to see her husband go by. There had been no confusion, she said. The townsfolk appeared to know nothing of what was happening until Mr. Thomas was safely lodged in the ward. Then she burst out crying again, lamenting the horrible state of the prison as it had been described to her, and demanding to know where God's justice was in allowing his faithful servants to be so tormented and harried. Marjorie watched her closely. She had met her once at Babington House when she was still Elizabeth Westley, but had thought little or nothing of her since. She was a pale little creature, fair-haired and timorous, and had now a hunted look of misery in her eyes that was very piteous to see. It was plain they had done right in coming. This woman would be of little service to her husband. Then when Alice had said a word or two, Marjorie began her questions. "'Tell me,' she said gently, "'had you no warning of this?' The girl shook her head. "'Not beyond that which came from yourself,' she said, and we never thought. Hath Mr. Thomas had any priest with him lately? We have not had one in Norbury for the last six months, whilst we were there at least. My husband said it was better not, and that there was a plenty of places for them to go. And you have not heard mass during that time? The girl looked at her with tear-stained eyes. No, she said, but why do you ask that? My husband says, and when was the first you heard of Topcliffe, and what have you heard of him? The other's face fell into lines of misery. I have heard he is the greatest devil her grace uses. He hath authority to question priests and others in his own house. He has a rack there that he boasts makes all other as Christmas toys. My husband—' Marjorie patted her arm gently. "'There, there,' she said kindly. "'Your husband is not in Topcliffe's house. There will be no question of that. He is here in his own county and—' "'But that will not save him,' cried the girl. "'Why—' "'Tell me,' interrupted Marjorie. "'Was Topcliffe with the men that took Mr. Thomas?' The other shook her head. "'No.' He was come from London yesterday morning. That was the first I heard of him. Then Alice began to soothe her gently, to tell her that her husband was in no great danger as yet, that he was well known for his loyalty, and to do her best to answer the girl's pitiful questions. And Marjorie sat back and considered. Marjorie had a remarkable knowledge of the methods of government, gathered from the almost endless stories she had heard from traveling priests and others. It was her business, too, to know them. Two or three things, therefore, if the girl's account was correct, were plain. First, that this was a concerted plan, and not a mere chance arrest. Mr. Audrey's message to her showed so much, and the circumstances of Topcliffe's arrival confirmed it. Next, it must be more than a simple blow struck at one man, Mr. Thomas Fitzherbert. Topcliffe would not have come down from London at all unless it were a larger quarry than Mr. Thomas that was aimed at. Thirdly, and in conclusion, it would not be easy, therefore, to get Mr. Thomas released again. There remained a number of questions which she had as yet no means of answering. Was it because Mr. Thomas was heir to the enormous Fitzherbert estates in this county and elsewhere that he was struck at? Or was it the beginning, merely, of a general assault on Derbyshire, such as had taken place before she was born? Or was it that Mr. Thomas's apparent coolness towards the faith, for that was evident by his not having heard Mass for so long, and by his refusal to entertain priests just at present, was it that lack of zeal on his part, which would, of course, be known to the army of informers scattered now throughout England, which had him marked out as the bird to be flown at? It would be indeed a blow to the Catholic gentry of the county if any of the Fitzherberts should fall. She stood up presently, grave with her thoughts. Mistress Alice glanced up. "'I am going out for a little,' said Marjorie. "'May two of your men follow me at a little distance. But I shall be safe enough. I am going to a friend's house.' Marjorie knew Derby well enough from the old days when she rode in sometimes with her father and slept at Mr. Bedell's, and above all she knew all that Derby had once been— in one place outside the town was St. Mary in Prates, where the Benedictine nuns had lived. St. Leonard's had had a hospital for lepers. St. Helen's had had the Augustinian hospital for poor brothers and sisters. St. Alckman's had a relic of its patron saint. All this she knew by heart, and it was bitter now to be here on such business. But she went briskly out from the hall, and ten minutes later she was knocking at the door of a little attorney, the old partner of her father's, whose house faced the Guildhall across the little market square. It was opened by an old woman who smiled at the sight of her. "'Ah, come in, mistress. The master saw you ride into town. He is in the upstairs parlor with Mr. Bassett.' The girl nodded to her bodyguard and followed the old woman in. She bowed as she passed the lawyer's confidential clerk and servant, Mr. George Beaton, in the passage, a big man with whom she had had communications more than once on popish affairs. Mr. John Bedell, like Marjorie's own father and his partner, was one of those quiet folks who lived through storms without attracting attention from the elements, yet without the sacrifice of principle.' He was a Catholic and never pretended to be anything else, but he was so little and so harmless that no man ever troubled him. He pleaded before the magistrates unobtrusively and deftly, and would have appeared before her grace herself for the lord of hell with the same timid and respectful air in his iron-rimmed spectacles, his speckless dark suit, and his little black cap drawn down to his ears. He had communicated with Marjorie again and again in the last two or three years on the subject of wandering priests, calling them gentlemen with the greatest care, and allowing no indiscreet word ever to appear in his letters. He remembered King Harry, whom he had seen once in a visit of his to London, he had assisted the legal authorities considerably in the restoration under Queen Mary, and he had soundlessly acquiesced in the changes again under Elizabeth, so far at least as mere law was concerned. Mr. William Bassett was a very different man. First, he was the brother-in-law of Sir Thomas Fitzherbert himself, and was entirely of the proper spirit to mate with that fearless family. He had considerable estates both at Langley and Blore, in both of which places he cheerfully evaded the new laws, maintaining and helping priests in all directions. A man, in fact, of an ardent and boisterous faith which he extended, so the report ran, even to magic and astrology. A man of means, too, in spite of his frequent fines for recusancy, and aged about fifty years old at this time, with a high color in his face and bright, merry eyes. Marjorie had spoken with him once or twice only. These two men, then, first turned round in their chairs and then stood up to salute Marjorie as she came into the upstairs parlor. It was a somewhat dark room, paneled where there was space for it between the books and with two windows looking out onto the square. "'I thought we would see you soon,' said the attorney. "'We saw you come, mistress, and the fellows that cried out on you.' "'They had their deserts," said Marjorie, smiling. Mr. Bassett laughed aloud. "'Indeed they did,' he said in his pleasant, deep voice. "'There were two of them with bloody noses before all was done. You have come for the news, I suppose, mistress?' He eyed her genially and approvingly. He had heard a great deal of this young lady in the last three or four years, and wished there were more of her kind. "'That is what I have come for,' said Marjorie. We have Mrs. Thomas over at Babington House. She'll be of no great service to her husband, said the other. She cries and laments too much. Now, he stopped himself from paying his compliments. It seemed to him that this woman, with her fearless, resolute face, would do very well without them. Then he set himself to relate the tale. It seemed that little Mrs. Thomas had given a true enough report. It was true that Topcliffe had arrived from London on the morning of the arrest, and Mistress Manners was perfectly right in her opinion that this signified a good deal. But, it seemed to Mr. Bassett, the council had made a great mistake in striking at the Fitzherberts. The quarry was too strong, he said, for such birds as the government used, too strong and too many. For, first, no Fitzherbert had ever yet yielded in his allegiance either to the church or to the Queen's Grace, and it was not likely that Mr. Thomas would begin. And next, if one yielded, God forbid, a dozen more would spring up. But the position was serious for all that, said Mr. Bassett, and Mr. Bedell nodded assent, for who would deal with the estates and make suitable arrangements if the heir, who already largely controlled them, were laid by the heels? But that the largeness of the undertaking was recognized by the council was plain enough, in that no less a man than Topcliffe—Mr. Bassett spat on the floor as he named him— Topcliffe, the devil possessed by worse devils, was sent down to take charge of the matter. Marjorie listened carefully. "'You have no fear for yourself, sir?' she asked presently as the man sat back in his chair. Mr. Bassett smiled broadly, showing his strong white teeth beneath the iron-gray hair that fringed his lips. No, I have no fear, he said. I have a score of my men quartered in the town. And the trial? When will that? The trial? Why, I shall praise God if the trial falls this year. They will harry him before magistrates, no doubt, and they will squeeze him in private. But the trial? Why, they have not a word of treason against him, and that is what they are after, no doubt. Treason? Why, surely, that is what they seek to fasten upon us all. It would not sound well that Christian should shed Christian's blood for Christianity, but that her grace should sorrowfully arraign her subjects whom she loves and cause it so much for treason, why, that is as sound a cause as any in the law books. He smiled in a manner that was almost a snarl, and his eyes grew narrow with ironic merriment. And Mr. Thomas? began Marjorie hesitatingly. He whisked his glance on her like lightning. Mr. Thomas will laugh at them all, he cried. He is as staunch as any of his blood. I know he has been careful of late, but then you must remember how all the estates hang on him but when he has his back to the wall, or on the rack for that matter, he will be as stiff as iron. They will have their work to bend him by a hair's breadth. Marjorie drew a breath of relief. She did not question Mr. Bassett's judgment, but she had had an uneasy discomfort in her heart till he had spoken so plainly. "'Well, sir,' she said, "'that is what I chiefly came for. I wished to know if I could do aught for Mr. Thomas or his wife, and—' "'You can do a great deal for his wife,' said he. "'You can keep her quiet and comfort her. She needs it, poor soul.' I have told her for her comfort that we shall have Thomas out again in a month. God forgive me for that lie. Marjorie stood up, and the men rose with her. Why, what is that? she said, and went swiftly to the window, for the noise of the crying of the cheeses and the murmur of voices had ceased all on a sudden. Straight opposite the window where she stood was the tiled flight of stairs that ran up from the marketplace to the first floor of the guild hall, a great building where the business of the town was largely done, and where the magistrates sat when there was need and a lane that was clear of booths and carts had been left leading from that door straight across the square, so she could see the two little brobonettes or iron guns that guarded the door on either side. It was up this lane that she looked, and down it that there advanced a little procession, the very sight of which, it seemed, had stricken the square to silence. Already the crowd was dividing from end to end, ranging itself on either side. Farmers' men shambled out of the way and turned to see, women clambered on the carts holding up their children to see, and from across the square came country folk running that they too might see. The steps of the cross were already crowded with sightseers. Yet to outward sight, the little procession was ordinary enough. First came three or four of the town guard in livery, carrying their staves, then half a dozen sturdy fellows, then a couple of dignified gentlemen, one of them she knew, Mr. Roger Columbell, magistrate of the town, and then, walking all alone, the figure of a man, tall and thin, a little rustily but very cleanly dressed in a dark suit, who carried his head stooping forward, as if he were looking on the ground for something, or as if he deprecated so much notice. Marjorie saw no more than this, clearly. She did not notice the group of men that followed in case protection were needed for the agent of the council, nor the crowd that swirled behind. For as the solitary figure came beneath the windows, she recognized the man whom she had seen once in the Tower of London. "'God smite the man!' growled a voice in her ear. "'That is Topcliffe going to the prison, I dare say.' And as Marjorie turned her pale face back, she saw the face of kindly Mr. Bassett, suffused and convulsed with fury."